Discover why critics are calling Kingdom of the Planet of the Apes the best film of the franchise. What a wonderful day! It's a jaw-dropping spectacle that demands to be seen on the biggest screen possible. I need to go. Hang on. It is our time. Kingdom of the Planet of the Apes. Now playing only in theaters. Tickets on sale now. Rated PG-13. Some material may be inappropriate for children under 13. Grammar Girl here. I'm Mignon Fogarty, and you can think of me as your friendly guide to the English language. Writing, history, rules, and cool stuff. Today, I have a segment about how to get started as a freelance writer, a tidbit about the word adventure, and a funny familect story. Let's get started. Around this time of year, as new college graduates are hitting the cold reality of the working world, I start getting questions about how to find work as a writer. How did I get started? What advice can I share? When I got my undergraduate degree in English, I had no idea how to get a job. None. I was the first person in my family to graduate from college, so getting the degree was the big goal for me. Nobody gave me much career counseling, and I didn't know enough to look for it myself. I struggled to find a job, and I was really close to having to move back home to live with my parents. I worked in direct sales for a while and then landed a job at an insurance brokerage owned by my friend's father. They were nice people, and I was incredibly grateful to have a job, and I liked working there, but it wasn't what I wanted to do forever. At the same time, I had a friend who had just graduated with a political science degree and had started working for political groups and writing pieces that were getting placed in newspapers— I was astonished. I mean, I was the writer. I was the one who had written for the school paper in high school and college. Upon reflection, I decided his biggest advantage was that he had a niche—politics. He had something to write about. And I didn't. It took me many more years and a roundabout path, but I finally ended up with a master's in biology and as much work as I could handle as a science writer and editor. Learning to write about something complicated turned out to be an especially great edge because not many people can understand medicine and biology and write well. You actually don't need an advanced degree to become a science writer, or I imagine a writer in any complicated field. But if you're just starting out, immersing yourself in a difficult field so you can write about it intelligently and with insight is a path I recommend. You'll have less competition, and these tend to be smaller universes. So once you get a little experience, it'll be easier to network. When you're just getting started, you need to look for an opening. For me, a laboratory fire at UC Santa Cruz was my first big break. It got me my first freelance writing assignment for the magazine The Scientist. I heard about the fire from a friend on campus, and I immediately cold-called the editorial offices at The Scientist. Because I already read the magazine, I was pretty sure it'd be the kind of thing they'd run. My main pitching point was that I was physically in Santa Cruz, that I could go up to campus, see what was going on, interview people, take pictures, and write about it quickly. They said yes and didn't even ask about my experience. And because I did a good job, my next pitches were welcome and writing for the scientist became a regular gig. 
One implied tip in that story is that you should be regularly reading the publications you want to write for. You have to know what they've already covered so you don't look clueless pitching something they just ran. And you have to be familiar with the tone and scope of the stories so you pitch pieces that are appropriate. Another strategy that's tied to geography is to offer to cover conferences in your hometown or that you'll be attending anyway. This works especially well for trade magazines that may be interested in the event but not have the budget to send someone. If you're going to be there anyway, it's a good way to get your foot in the door without a lot of experience. Joining writing and trade associations is another way to find out about opportunities. When I was starting out as a science writer, I joined the National Association of Science Writers and later the American Medical Writers Association. You should frequent the discussion groups or social media pages and go to the events and meet the people. It really is true that a large part of getting a job or getting new clients or assignments is who you know. A lot of opportunities are never posted anywhere. If you're shy and have a hard time making small talk, volunteer to help in some way. You could set up the room, contact potential speakers, anything that gives you a reason to talk to people. Also, give people physical business cards. It makes you harder to forget. At the very least, people will probably put your card in their pocket or bag and think of you again when they take it out after the event. And you never know, they might keep the card and see it on their desk or in a drawer when they need help in the future. Another way to get your foot in the door is to write when nobody else wants to. Look hard for work around the holidays. Many established writers will turn down work in December, but people still need things written. These days, I'd definitely turn down work because of the holidays. But when I was just getting started, I picked up a lot of new assignments and new clients in November and December. Another good time of year to put your search in overdrive is at the end of a fiscal year. Big companies and government agencies often have money left at the end of the fiscal year, and if they don't spend it, they lose it. Find out when the fiscal year ends for people you want to work for and drop them a line or call them to say hello around that time. I picked up lots of work from people who found themselves with money to spend and only a couple of weeks to spend it. Also, when you're just getting started, don't be afraid to ask for help and advice. You have nothing to lose but a little dignity, and you'll probably even get to keep that. Right after I graduated, I met a couple of people at a party who freelanced for the local newspaper. I wanted to ask them for introductions and advice, but I was too afraid. In reality, I was being ridiculous. What did I have to lose? Maybe they would have thought I was annoying, but I never saw them again anyway. More likely, they would have loved to talk about their jobs and pass on bits of useful information. Most people love to talk about their work, and if you're not pressuring them to give you a job or an introduction immediately, they're usually happy to give you advice, which can start out as general advice but become more specific if they like you. Finally, once you get assignments, move heaven and earth to do a good job. It's absolutely shocking how many writers miss their deadlines. Make your deadlines. Author Mer Lafferty said this best on a panel at the Worldcon conference about writing games, but it applies to all writing situations. If you get a reputation for being dependable, you're more likely to get work. Even if you're not the most brilliant writer editors know, if they know you'll turn in decent work on time, you're much more likely to get hired than the brilliant writer who's always late.
It all comes back to who you know, and that can work for or against you. Build a reputation as a solid, dependable writer, and after a few years, work will be a lot easier to find. Finally, I came across a great book about freelancing a few years ago called The Essential Guide to Freelance Writing by Zachary Pettit. I never taught freelance writing when I was a college professor, but if I had, it's the book I would have used. It's full of advice like I just gave you from my own experience and much more. Next, let's go on an etymological adventure written by Christopher Golden. I'm sometimes fascinated to discover common words whose origins are not precisely what I had assumed. One of them in particular always puts me in mind of a favorite quote from The Princess Bride. You keep using that word, but I do not think it means what you think it means. The word adventure is used so broadly that it's often taken for granted. Colloquially, many associate it with an exciting journey— But when contemplating its etymology, the natural instinct suggests its closest cousin might be advent, from the Latin adventus. Yet while the words are certainly related, they're more like distant cousins than siblings. While it's true that adventure was born later, it's derived from the Latin advenire. Following the roots deeper, the words share etymological DNA, as advenire means to arrive— But by instead moving forward with them, following the branches instead of the roots, we find further separation. The use of Advent to describe the four-week season leading up to Christmas on the Christian calendar goes back to the 12th century. But its usage to refer to an onset or arrival, such as the Advent of the Industrial Age, didn't enter the language until the mid-18th century. The word aventure, without the D, entered the lexicon around 1200 CE, borrowed from Old French and used to refer to something that happened by chance or luck. An understanding of adventure as something rife with risk and danger developed about a century later, and by 1400 CE, the common understanding of aventure as a perilous undertaking had taken hold. Later, in the 15th century, the D was restored to the word, and it settled into our modern spelling. Following this evolution, it seems clear that adventure was neither inspired by the 12th century religious usage of Advent, or to have in turn inspired the 18th century onset of Advent. Thus, adventure is not the beginning of the journey, but the perilous travels themselves. I confess I once assumed otherwise. This leads me to an element of the word's origin that many recountings of his etymology manage to leave out, which is remarkable given its pertinence. In the 13th century, adventure could be taken to mean a miracle or an account of a marvelous thing. By the mid-16th century, the word could also be construed to refer to a remarkable occurrence in one's life— Perhaps it's no surprise, then, that adventure became a label attached to a particular genre of fiction from the earliest days of popular literature. Tales of heroic adventure date back to the advent of the written word, not only to Greek myth, but to the earliest known fictional story, the Epic of Gilgamesh, which first appeared around 2100 BCE. Gilgamesh begat a million heroes and heroines and infinite adventures, 
particularly in the golden age of the adventure novel in the late 19th and early 20th centuries, which featured tales by legendary authors such as Edgar Rice Burroughs, Alexander Dumas, H. Ryder Haggard, Rudyard Kipling, Herman Melville, Robert Louis Stevenson, Jules Verne, Baroness Ortsey, and Jack London, who emphasized the theme with the title of his 1911 novel, Adventure. That, of course, is only the beginning of the adventure of adventure. That segment was written by New York Times bestselling author Christopher Golden, a Bram Stoker award-winning novelist, as well as a screenwriter, editor, and comic book writer. His latest novel, The Pandora Room, is a supernatural thriller that turns ancient lore into a modern-day horror. Finally, I have a familect story from Alan. I love his enthusiasm. Hi, Mignon. This is Alan Stout from Cedar Hill, Utah. I have a familect that I thought you might enjoy. Uh, Several years ago, when I was attending Brigham Young University in Provo, Utah, my aunt and uncle, with whom I lived at the time, were driving by Provo High School. The three of us together were driving by. And we looked up at the marquee as we passed the high school, and it had the strangest word we had ever seen. It was hoopsatorum, H-O-O-P-S-A-T-O-R-E-M, hoopsatorum. Not even Dr. Seuss, for all his whimsical brilliance, could have invented a word as terrific as hoopsatorum. But what did it mean? We had no, we had no idea what it could possibly mean, and we puzzled over it until we realized that it was. We realized that it was that it was a reference to the upcoming basketball game at Orem High School between Provo High School and Orem High School. It was hoops at Orem, hoops at Orem, and we all laughed and laughed, and it immediately and permanently became part of our family's own dialect. And, and we adopted it as the superlative of congratulatory or celebratory words. I just got a new job. Oops, a totem, Alan. My little sister literally yesterday, just yesterday had a baby. Yes, she literally had a baby meaning she had a baby just yesterday. And what did I text her on my family's uh, group thread? Hoopsatorum. And my older sister, a couple weeks ago, she got a new job. And what did I text her? Hoopsatorum. My phone is even starting to recognize that I'm using this word with some frequency because I just have to type H-O-O and it recommends Hoopsatorum. I hope you've enjoyed this story about this terrific word that can be used in all sorts of contexts. It doesn't have to be for matters large. It can be for matters small. We're having pizza for dinner tonight? Hoops at home. So I hope that you select this for your show, for I know that if I were to, and if I were to tell my, my word-loving family about that, they would certainly congratulate me in the only way they know how. Hoops at home. Well, all I can say is hoopsatorum, Alan, and thanks for the great story. 
If you'd like to share your familect story, the story about a word that your family and only your family uses, you can leave a voicemail at 83-321-4-GIRL. And be sure to tell me why your family uses the word, because that's always the best part of the story. That's 83-321-4-GIRL, and you might hear your story on the show. I'm Mignon Fogarty, better known as Grammar Girl and author of seven books, including the New York Times bestseller, Grammar Girl's Quick and Dirty Tips for Better Writing. And thanks to my audio producer, Nathan Sams. This show is part of the Quick and Dirty Tips podcast network, and you can find articles that go with each episode at quickanddirtytips.com. That's all. Thanks for listening. Hey, it's Mignon. If you want to do more to hone your communication skills, then check out Think Fast, Talk Smart, produced by the Stanford Graduate School of Business and hosted by my friend and Stanford lecturer, Matt Abrahams. You may remember Matt from his interview on the show back in September when he shared his top tips for becoming a better writer and speaker. Think Fast, Talk Smart is his Webby award-winning podcast, which has been downloaded 41 million times and has been the number one career podcast in more than 95 countries, so you know it's worth your time. Whether you're making a wedding toast or presenting at work, strong speaking skills are critical to success in business and in life, which is why Matt sits down with experts every week to talk about the best tips to unlock your communication potential. Hear from pros like neuroscientist Andrew Huberman on how to manage speaking anxiety, speechwriter and bestselling author Dan Pink on how to take risks in your communication, and psychologist Kelly McGonigal on how to harness nervous energy to fuel powerful presentations. So what are you waiting for? Listen to Think Fast, Talk Smart every Tuesday, wherever you get your podcasts or on YouTube. And tell Matt I said hi.